late stage deals significantly underperform a composite early stage strategy. What I did find surprise from our research is just looking at our revenue basis, comparing early stage, late stage, a lot of the upsides actually came from these early stage opportunities. So when we looked at the average revenue for early stage asset versus late stage, that delta is about two to three times. Welcome, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the Inside Global Pharma podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Curtis. One of the themes of the podcast has really been around how do we drive better global strategy within the pharmaceutical industry? We focused a lot around the downstream commercial aspects and how to pull through with launch strategy at scale. And we've also looked upstream on how to increase the focus in defining a portfolio strategy. Well, today we're really focusing about how to bring this together how to really pull through on that portfolio vision with disciplined, effective strategies behind acquiring innovation. We'll explore some of the trends that we've seen in the past around how big pharma is sourcing innovation, if it's working, and importantly, if it's sustainable in the future. So joining me for today's discussion is Cody Powers and Nan Wang, leaders of the ZS Global Portfolio Business Development Practice. Cody, Nan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having us. Well, it's great to have you. Can you each give a brief introduction on the, the type of work and focus that you have? Sure. Uh, I lead our portfolio and business development practice here at ZS, which is, uh, as the name would suggest, kind of a two-wing approach. Uh, one uh, for portfolio strategy and formation issues and questions, and then oftentimes, obviously, the transactions and transaction strategy to drive those. I think uh, for our topic here today, it's a bit of the marriage of the two. We'll, uh, we'll talk about them, but I think it's, it's fairly representative of the, the work that we bring to bear as part of the practice here at ZS. And thanks for having me as well. My name is Nan. Um, I'm part of our portfolio MDD team at ZS, part of Cody's team. Great. Well, thank you both. I know you recently did some research on the industry, so maybe let's kick off just talking about the current state of innovation. Now, there are a ton of changes going on. We've seen that at ZS, we've published research around it's, it's getting harder and harder to find blockbusters. The, the bar for innovation is getting higher, while the individual opportunities for every asset are getting smaller. Alongside that, we see a ton of pressure around pricing with the recent passing of the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., and we're also seeing shrinking R&D productivity. So with all of these trends and dynamics going on, how are we starting to see this play out? Well, I think once upon a time, you um, the way that if you looked at how the industry is structured from an organization standpoint, you kind of developed everything yourself or you discovered it, you developed it, you executed obviously your own trials, you brought it to market yourself, you sold it. You know, over time, because the industry has become much more fragmented, partly by design. I think as uh, companies got to a certain point and realized it just wasn't possible to do everything within inside their four walls and the birth of the biotech industry, you know, the, essentially innovation is much more diffuse now, at least in terms of its uh, formation. You know, if you look at companies today, roughly across large cap, about 60, 70% of, of their revenue on average is from technology, from assets that originated from outside. So I think we've long gone in the days of pure play vertical integration. It's much more of a uh, what we're referring to here as the constellation 
essentially across the uh, the sector. You know, the problem is that the way that that transpired over the last 20 years or so, that the market conditions that existed at the beginning where it made good economic sense has started to change in a way that the thesis is a little bit harder to justify, meaning a lot of the revenue growth you look at over the last 20 years has come from late-stage M&A as the primary driver. At valuations circa 2000, you know, the uh, early days of Aztec Biotech Index may not even been a, been a thing then, but but you can imagine going back 20 years that uh, that the valuation would just look a lot lower than it does today. You know, at back then, price to uh, potential revenue and earnings outcome made made a heck of a lot more sense. If you look at it now, that's not necessarily always the case. In fact, you see a lot of deals that just from the outset you can kind of understand or assess would be very very difficult to make creative. So I think that's a, a large part of the problem we're trying to solve here. If the industry as a whole has kind of become dependent on late stage deals to drive and meet revenue growth and goals, and you're kind of stuck on this proverbial treadmill of sorts, we need to rethink the way that we are sourcing innovation from the outside in such that we can get to something that's probably more sustainable long-term as opposed to a kind of near-term revenue chasing, if you will, even if we know that uh, maybe not long-term value enhancing or accretive relative to the amount that's invested. Yeah, and I think a few things that Jen, you touched on to add to that, certainly this diminishing R&D productivity and the valuation surging with a lot of the large cap pharma, we're seeing a little bit of the reverse on the smaller pharma side. So a lot of actually 65% of the molecules in development right now in R&D pipeline are being developed by these emerging pharma. And a lot of these smaller companies are choose to commercialize their products well. So just thinking about kind of the supply and demand going forward, you're going to probably have less and less dependency from small pharma on large pharma, and then kind of further shrinking the available targets for large companies to consider. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point, uh, the shrinking targets. And I, I think maybe using that as, as a bit of the basis to talk about some of the research that you guys have recently done. You looked at different innovation strategies that large pharmaceutical companies had pursued over the, the past 15 years and their performance. I think you kind of touched on maybe some of the hypotheses, but maybe you could explore a bit more on what you were expecting to see going into that research and what you found. Yeah, there's always been this kind of widely held belief, not even just specifically the pharmaceutical industry, but even cross sectors of, well, you know, large, large M&A doesn't really pay out. You've got a lot of uh, research that's already been tried true in that topic. So I think it was going to be an entirely huge surprise at the size and scale. I think what was surprising, perhaps, is the consistency going back actually much further than we thought it would, where um, essentially a uh, call it a syndicate version of an M&A strategy where you're doing a heck of a lot more small early stage deals to try to best what you could produce in one foul swoop, if you will, with a larger late stage deal. There's a lot more evidence that 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 has been a successful strategy going back, you know, 15 plus years than I think we would have thought. You know, the, the reason being that if you went back to our original thesis statement here 15, 20 years ago, we just assumed valuations are lower, it's easier to justify those deals then just because you wouldn't have been paying, you've been paying far less per dollar revenue then certainly turned out to be the case. But even, you know, going back 10 years, I think even then you start to see this breaking point of 
well, if I had done more early stage deals and frankly did them at scale and the patient, I, I could have ended up in a, a frankly a better place. So to me, that was probably the biggest insight that this is not necessarily a brand new phenomenon. Uh, in fact, if you were to rewire the machine, so to speak, with a contemporary valuation, contemporary development costs, et cetera, then it makes it very obvious that you know we're well, well past that point when late stage M&A would do anything other than plug the near-term revenue hole, which we can maybe talk about later. And I think there in the, the ambitions and the incentive structure is just fairly naked for all to see that, uh, that it's not necessarily the long-term value accretion that's critical or driving it. It really is just kind of a near-term duct tape solution, if you will, that, um, that you're, you're doing it primarily for. It's an interesting point there, Cody. You say like it's not really surprising to find this, but I think what you're probably kind of finding surprising is like the magnitude of that difference between earlier stage investment versus late stage. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, if you don't take development costs into account, you know, it would be a blowout, so to speak, in terms of the relationship between revenue accretion. Uh, versus investment, we we tend to look at uh, revenue for the first four years post-launch. A couple of reasons. Historically, four years uh, is enough time for you to kind of see what the long-term trajectory of an asset is. It's not 100% indicative, but uh, but it is fairly representative of long-term success. Number two, you know, we're trying to make uh, obviously use of the data that we have. Right, the longer of a window you allow, the less less a sample you're going to have to work with. So um, on that basis, when we looked at it, you know, it was pretty clear. Uh, pre-development costs wouldn't even really be close. The, the early stage performance significantly outweighed the, the late stage deal performance. Uh, when you take into development costs over, uh, say, earlier periods up to, say, 2013, you saw that tighten with development costs, unsurprisingly. But what happens um, if you then take that same set of assumptions that you made in 2013 for valuation and revenue comps, because valuation has only gone up in late stage deals, significantly since then and the actual revenue per asset has gone down that it essentially reintroduces the same problem all over again meaning that that on that basis when you adjust for current market conditions even in light of the uh bear market we've all been facing in the last uh call it year and a half that even in that situation it's pretty obvious that uh that late stage deals significantly underperform uh, or a composite early stage uh strategy so I think that's that was probably what I I think was probably the biggest takeaway here from our work that if you see a signal as early as ten years ago or so that things could have gone either way ten years ago now it's you just from out of market conditions it's really not not really close and so therefore it's just kind of a window shifting exercise of do I prioritize the next couple of years or do I prioritize five to ten years out to to build on that too I think certainly. The value accretion or how that's changing over time probably isn't a surprise to many people. What I did find surprise from our research is just looking at a revenue basis, comparing early stage, late stage, a lot of the upsides actually came from these early stage opportunities. So when we looked at the average revenue for early stage asset versus late stage, that delta is about two to three times. And there are some examples we can think of some of the most transformative opportunities in this in the industry actually came into the portfolio at that very early stage. So if we think of how kind of trend, transactions are happening, some of these more kind of higher risks and potentially higher reward opportunities are probably taking out in their earlier stage of development cycle. 
um, if you wait till the very last minute, you're aiming for the sure thing, but maybe that upside is already tapped. So that was a surprising point for me. Yeah, I think the other thing, and I'm curious to hear what you saw from your research on this, but to the point of acquiring innovation earlier on, yeah, it makes total sense. The companies that tend to acquire later stage, it's usually looking to plug some kind of revenue gap. I think that's understood. But are you seeing something more systematic in certain companies in the type of strategy? For example, I would imagine companies are more comfortable and confident pursuing an earlier stage strategy in areas that they know, that they're committed to, that they're looking to build out versus companies that are pursuing more of a late stage strategy, pursuing more of like a sure thing and or wanting to break into a new therapeutic area. So how does that play out? Yeah, if, if you look at it just from pure dollar perspective, on a proportional basis, there's definitely a difference in sourcing early versus late. But on an absolute basis, I mean, everybody's a late stage person. It's pretty difficult to partition off. We did find that there were certain groups of companies if you actually looked at the revenue composition, that virtually all of their blockbuster presence from late stage acquisition or overwhelming majority, we did find those that tended to move earlier and who were able to successfully source blockbusters at an earlier stage. What happened is a, a market difference in overall shareholder return. Um, so if you actually look at the data, the companies who performed strongest in shareholder return over the time periods that we looked at, tended to be more likely to have acquired something as early as preclinical, uh, but even in reality, usually phase one assets are just coming out of a proof of concept study into phase two. Um, those companies tended to overperform. So I think on a basis of company by company strategy and performance, we did see a reasonably strong connection there between overall stock performance and propensity to move earlier, or at least success of having moved earlier and been able to find high productivity assets earlier rather than later. And Jen, maybe to your question about where companies are thinking about potentially going earlier stage versus late stage, I think risk is one way to think about it. The other might be thinking about the immediate investment requirement you have within the companies. So for example, if you're looking to acquire a late stage opportunity, you may think about you needing to commercialize it very soon. So probably in areas where you already have a presence or core areas of strength versus if you think about early stage opportunities, you can think of potentially I watch and wait. I have something it acquired an early stage and see how that pans out, potentially anchor the next growth area for my company. The other argument you can make is you could also do it in the areas you core strength, again, sustaining a healthy growth of the company beyond kind of that immediate revenue you're getting from these late stage deals. I think all that being said is there's probably not one single answer of where you should go early stage versus late stage. Um, I think more so is having a plan, having that being more proactive rather than reactive, trying to uh, just get the revenue, uh, trying to kind of plug any immediate revenue gaps. Yeah, which I think makes sense, right? If you're if what is, what's the saying like never go shopping when you're hungry food shopping when you're hungry because you'll kind of take anything that comes along and I imagine a similar analogy is here right if you need to plug a revenue gap you're probably going to be willing to spend a lot more and be less selective than otherwise I guess I'm kind of wondering are there any companies that are more systematically able to apply this discipline versus others or is it really every company <laughs> does this 
and it's just kind of the luck of the draw. Yeah, if you looked at those who are more systematic, uh, there's a couple in our sample that we, we analyzed who, for example, had disproportionately higher platform investment. We define platform essentially as asset agnostic or pre-asset technology that's used across a wider array of uh, development programs that later emerge. Of those companies that had invested strongly in those, we followed the path of those platform deals. Again, these are this is way before platform really became popular over the last five to seven years or so. But a lot of those early platform deals actually have become the backbone of entire large cap pharma portfolio. So I, I think on that basis, that was just kind of an example of companies that had made a decided choice. Um, I think if you look at companies that had skewed the other direction, they were all late stage dominant. Look, you know, we shouldn't say that they haven't been successful on a revenue basis, but certainly on a returns basis, the strategy doesn't really draw clear and obvious conclusions that I was a better choice, given that, yes, even if you had stronger revenue accretion, that kind of winner's curse, if you will, inorganic growth, you pay a lot, then the bar, the bar is that much higher. And you found that a lot of times those late stage deal companies just did not produce results that were commensurate with the, uh, the amount invested. And that similar correlation that Cody mentioned earlier with kind of the, the shareholder perception, it also kind of more or less correlate with the different paths different companies choose to take, right? So some of the more late stage dominant companies overall over the last 15 years or so, the shareholder return from TSRs might be a little bit lower than the companies that uh, skewed more towards the other direction, buying for some of the more platform earlier stage opportunities. Yeah, so I mean, maybe looking back and identifying some of those similarities, like you were talking about, like those kind of platform opportunities. Looking ahead, though, it's so uncertain. Many companies are looking for those types of opportunities, but they're fewer and, and farther between. In addition, there's just a ton of uncertainty in general. And a lot of the, the huge inflation that we saw in deal making is has completely slowed down. So isn't it really a, a buyer's market now if the tables turned for large pharma? Um, I guess two things. One, I mean, in some ways, everything's always relative. So in the last year and a half, yeah, things are a lot cheaper. But just because uh, things are cheaper in absolute terms doesn't mean they're absolutely cheaper in relative terms. You know, a lot of folks are in a difficult position right now where they themselves have to batten down the hatches. So, they, you know, it's not like the money is that free-flowing. I think number two, even if you unwound and you looked at current valuation today, even um, though we're suffering what, let's say on average, someone's down by half, more than half, something like that, those would still be uh, far greater than historical valuations. If you tack on a premium, you know, you probably uh, are still well above a profitability mark relative to what you would have experienced, say, 20 years ago when valuations were much lower than they were right now, even adjusted for the current correction. So I think the, um, well, the magnitude is certainly different contemporary times, I think, uh, the ability of companies to spend right now, we just haven't really seen it. There's only a handful of companies really that have carried most of the M&A load more recently. Um, and uh, number two, that even if you make the adjustment, I mean, the, the same point would hold. It's just that maybe not by the same magnitude as it would have been by a year and a half ago. Yeah, I think the other aspect is probably getting back to the demand side of the equation as well. So even though valuation has gone down quite significantly in the past year and a half, um, IPO markets and venture financing into kind of the biotech ecosystems really at record high in 2020 and 2021. Um, so again, some of these companies with alternative kind of financing sources being available, 
some of them might want to hold on to their assets for longer and again, potentially going loan um, in the future, kind of further shrinking whatever you have available uh, for M&A transactions. No, it's a good point. I mean, we've definitely seen this slowing down in deal making and future is uncertain. Obviously, no one has a crystal ball on it. But I guess kind of looking ahead, the research that you've done has clearly shown the magnitude of this challenge that the industry is facing. What are your your predictions and recommendations for sourcing in the future? Yeah, pred- prediction, if I was good at that camera, I'd just probably go to Vegas instead. So. <laughs> I'll uh, to avoid that one. But I, I think, you know, if you look at what's likely to transpire here, this waiting game is going on right now, where you get a lot of smaller guys that are frankly trying to survive the current crisis, particularly those are, are public, you know, public equity financing, obviously, is very difficult to come by right now, whether it's certainly IPO market is, uh, OPO windows almost completely shut down, and then season equity offerings have been way down as well. So I think on that basis, the waiting game is is kind of just seeing like who's who's going to make it, so to speak, I think. But you'll probably see more and more companies getting back in the market once they see, a, frankly, a willingness to uh, reach out for even diluted financing or more likely to be partner-level financing, you know, XUS rights and so forth, to be able to sustain growth and becoming much more attractive to large-cap pharma, at least on a valuation basis. I think on the small-cap side, what, what is kind of interesting there, obviously, we've had a, even though it's a down year technically this year, still be probably second largest year ever in terms of private side financing. So on that basis, what I think would be a more interesting notion longer term, if there's kind of this fundamental rethink of like what value, what, what is a good value, you know, some of these earlier stage programs that have essentially been shelved this year at an unbelievable rate, you know, a lot of these companies will start to come back into focus naturally of particularly early stage scouting groups and BD teams who will who see very promising long-term technology at perhaps evaluations that they, they didn't think like possible before and getting more favorable terms. Uh, and those, you know, if you look at the ecosystem as a whole, th- those are not the ones that are in short supply. Those, there are, are many more options just by virtue of being early stage. It's really the, the commodity uh, or lack thereof, rather the uh, one that's hard to access will always be these late stage emerging biotechs phase three, where as Nan pointed out that the, uh, at least up until the last year and a half, relatively friendly financing environment has given them the ability to carry it over the finish line themselves. So I think it'll, this this current time where everyone's facing the same crunch buy and sell side will probably give more companies the ability to kind of fundamentally rethink and see attractive early stage valuation opportunities just on the basis of frankly, a lot of those companies are going to need cash coming out of, uh, well, not knock on wood, <laughs> some kind of rebound that we would, we would eventually see and that will essentially fuel the rebound rather than, um, you know, pure play equity markets being the primary source of financing. And Nan, how about you? Any other recommendations or perspectives? I think just in terms of maybe for our research, certainly we've looked at a lot of the more historical performances and where the, the answer and the data is more definitive and certainly going forward, you know, with some of the predictions we have in the market with reasonable assumptions, we do want to kind of help to project and evaluating kind of the trade-offs of different kind of sourcing innovation, sourcing strategies as we looking at more current time. So I think that is probably my goal for the next phase of what we want to do with this work. So we talked about, you know, the future and looking ahead and the need to be thinking about different ways of sourcing innovation. 
I think one angle that you may have mentioned earlier in the conversation was around exploring different alternative models like large firm or large firm of partnerships and things like that. Uh, what, what kind of ideas and opportunities may exist around that? Yeah, and on the idea of large to large, I mean, it's probably just a general curiosity what's behind the other doors, so to speak, of companies. I think for experienced dealmakers who've been around for a while and maybe who haven't seen the same results they'd want out of lacy transactions, just kind of a hunger to see what else is out there. So I think on on that basis, maybe some of our thesis here is, is a little difficult to swallow, I think, for some folks. Understandably so, it involves more risk if you look at individual programs. But I think more and more companies on the BD and corporate strategy side in light of elevated valuation, I think more and more are willing to take a look at, hey, what's a different way to do it? Should we dramatically scale up the early stage operations? Maybe if we embrace the strategy, it could give us an inflection point relative to our competitors. Um, if we embrace the large cap to large cap collaborations more than we historically have, let our guard down a little bit, does that open new possibilities for mutual value creation Then we could fund on our own if we're basically having to finance a small biotech entirely? So I, I think there's, even if people may or may not be willing at the current moment in time to embrace a early stage dominant environment, at least within their own strategy, I think there's this kind of this hunger to find something beyond just rinse and repeat late stage deals that maybe more, uh, like we said before, just stuck on the treadmill per se. I think maybe one more thing to add there as well. A lot of companies certainly are, are still thinking about venture. Companies have been doing it, but it may be time to also think more seriously what venture may do um, other than just being a financial vehicle for the company. What may do to the company's portfolio and pipeline and trying to get some of these earlier stage innovation into the company. We covered a lot of ground in this episode. We talked about the current state of big pharmaceutical companies' innovation sourcing model and the potential challenges, along with looking at the historical performance of these different sourcing strategies, and introduced the concept of an innovation constellation as a framework for sourcing innovation in the future. If you're interested in learning more about this topic or the research discussed, you can find more on our website at cs.com. That's it for this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. Thank you for listening. <music>